0: Thanks for listening to the Unity Fort Worth podcast. So today is an exciting day, at least for me it is, and I hope it will be for you too. We're going to start on a series on the book Siddhartha by Hermann Hesse. Hermann Hesse is a German author and poet and has written this a long, long time ago. And even though he took some liberties in terms of... um, how to describe that journey that Siddhartha is going through to eventually become the Buddha, there's actually a lot of accuracies in here, at least when um, we look at some of the things that we know about the story of Siddhartha. Siddhartha lived quite a a few years before Jesus Christ, and our series is going to be a comparison between Siddhartha's journey and Jesus' journey which probably will be not necessarily familiar to you, because we often look at Jesus as being this perfect being that kind of just was born and never had to learn anything, right? It's like this perfect expression of God, doesn't doesn't make any mistakes, doesn't have to grow, doesn't have to do anything, that's often how we learn about Jesus Christ. Whereas if we look at Siddhartha's story, it's very clear that he goes through quite some trouble. He has to learn a lot. He makes a lot of mistakes. But when you study the story of Jesus, even though we don't know a lot about his life until about 30, 33 years old, whenever his ministry started, you actually can also see that in his teachings, in his ministry, there's actually a lot of growth going on. You can make that comparison if you're bold enough to say so and say, well, Jesus wasn't really all the way there, if you will. Or even if you say, well, he was already a perfect expression of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, he still grew throughout his ministry. So a lot of what we do in the next seven weeks, we will actually make this comparison through the lens of continuous growth because that is what we are doing. If any of us ever believes that we got it, we're enlightened, we no longer have anything to learn, it's not how this works and you can ask, Any guru, anyone you believe actually has reached the state of enlightenment or awakening or is maybe just a little bit more put together than you see yourself, anyone you ask says you never stop learning. It's actually commonly known, especially in the Eastern um, religions and philosophies, that enlightenment, what we see as the end goal in the Western world, in the Eastern world, is only seen as the beginning of life. Imagine that for a moment. That before we reach the point of enlightenment, awakening, nirvana, moksha, whatever, before we reach that point of the end of suffering, we're not really living. Quite interesting, isn't it? So when we start, then, in chapter one, we learn about the very beginning of Siddhartha's journey, the son of the Brahman. And in order to understand what Brahman means, you kind of need to understand the caste system that existed for thousands of years in India. And I have a, an image here. There's five castes, and that go from the very bottom, which is the largest caste, the Dalits, the untouchable, the street cleaners, and then to the Shudras, the Vaishyas, the Kshatriyas, and then on the very top, the Brahmins. So the son of the Brahmin refers to Siddhartha's dad, his father. And in Siddhartha, in Hermann Hesse's version, his father was a Brahmin. So he was a priest or an academic. The very top of the pyramid, not very Many people get into that caste. It's a very high, um, hi- highly decorated caste. You had to be born into almost in order to be able to be there. And then you studied from the first moment you take your breath until the last moment you live on Earth. You studied and studied and studied. In another version of Siddhartha's birth, actually his father was not a Brahmin, but he was a warrior. He was a chief of a clan. So he was just one caste below the kshatriyas, the rulers, the administrators, the warriors. And then Siddhartha was born into the world. And he was so bright and was seen as someone so special, very much like Jesus, that he was put into the highest caste possible. Here's a picture of baby Siddhartha. And you see King Suddhodana, who is his father, and Queen Maya. Queen Maya, according to the Buddhist uh, history, she actually died seven days after Siddhartha was born. And Siddhartha's mother was actually not his birth mother. It was a sister, Maya's sister, who raised him for most of his life. And Siddhartha may or may not even have known that. But it's significant when you think about the story. Seven days, seven has a significance in metaphysics, right? Uh, The other thing that's really significant and somehow comparable to Mary giving birth to Jesus is that Queen Maya had a vision before she got pregnant that a white elephant with six trusks would move into her side of the body. And that was her sign that her son, who would be born, will be someone really special, someone of the Brahmin caste, a priest, a scholar, a highly decorated person, but even among the caste, one of the greatest. Doesn't that remind you of Jesus as well? Jesus often is compared to a rabbi that he has studied, he knew scripture, he knew the Jewish laws, and he fulfilled the laws rather than just followed the law, as we famously know. But he actually understood very well what that priest caste in the Jewish tradition looks like. So we have a comparison there. Now, Maya has another significance. If you remember, I took apart the Om symbol a few months ago. The Ohm symbol has a lot of symbolism in there. And if you remember, there you have those three swiggly things in the bottom, which represents our waking state. It's the three-dimensional world, waking, sleeping, dreaming. And then you have the diamond on the very top. And then there's this swish in between. And that swish is considered a veil. And that veil is called maya. And maya means illusion. It's the illusion that we experience, that when we experience this human flesh, that we have maya as a veil in front of us that keeps us away from truly believing and embracing the idea that we are the diamond, that we are God, that we are spirit itself. And so it's interesting that we have maya as Siddhartha's mother, Dying seven days after his birth. She had a function and then she fell away. The diamond itself is called Atman. And if you read chapter one and chapter two, then you remember that Atman actually came up quite a bit, that word. It's often wrongly translated in the Western world as the soul. But Atman is more than that. The soul still has some part of individuality that remains. But Atman means the self, as in the capital self, when we completely surrender to the greatness of all. So the diamond itself doesn't represent anything but the ultimate experience of being. And we're all part of that. In unity, we call that diamond God, and we call it principle. We don't separate it, just like we don't do it in Hinduism. We don't separate God and the individual from it. We just see the separation as that veil of Maya. And then, of course, you have the bottom end, the squiggly bits there, the half circles, or the half whatever you want to call them. That's basically the world as we know it. Okay, so that sets you up a little bit what we're talking about. So then we have Siddhartha growing up. One thing to really understand, because we don't really have any evidence of how Jesus grew up. You know, some scholars believe that Joseph, his father, was a carpenter, and so Jesus learned the practice or the the job or the profession of being a carpenter. We also know later on in his younger teen years, or just before he turned teen as a 12-year-old, there's some hint there that he was a scholar to a degree, that he understood how to read and interpret scripture quite well, and everyone was amazed with it, and that has a significance too. In Siddhartha's case here, he was protected. You see him here, and these are his servants and his friends and all that. They're basically protecting him. He was raised in a temple. And his father did not want him to experience suffering. So he, didn't, he wasn't allowed to get out of the temple. He wasn't allowed to go anywhere. And he was given everything he needed and wanted. And so they tried to create all these joyful experiences. He, never was, he was never hungry. He never experienced pain, nothing. He, his father and, and um, in a sense, his mother they were trying to raise him without any flaws. Here is a this depiction of the temple. So you see those temple walls, and if you know the story, if you read along a little bit further in chapter one and chapter two, there is a part in the Buddhist story where Siddhartha goes out. It's not in Hermann Hesse's version, but Siddhartha goes out and experiences for the first time what suffering looks like. He experiences first time what we all experience every day. But in a sense, his parents wanted to keep him safe, right in there, so he would never experience that. Because they believed that he was so special, they thought they needed to protect him. Sounds very familiar, doesn't it? How many parents are in here? Quite a few. Can you resonate with that? Trying to raise your child in a temple, whether you have a big temple, or if it's just a temple of your home, or even temple of your heart, trying to protect your child, trying to avoid avoid that your child is ever sad, never has a breakup, (laughs) never experiences heartache, right? We can all relate to that. And that was part of Siddhartha's experience. And then we read this, even though he was raised, and again, I believe we all can relate to that, especially when we're parents, but even if we're not parents, we probably get some sense that if we're trying to avoid pain, we're trying to have this perfect life, it doesn't really matter because in the end, there's still something missing. And that's what Siddhartha realizes here but he siddhartha was not a source of joy for himself he found no delight in himself imagine that for a moment imagine for a moment that our house our mortgage was paid for us we had always had food we didn't have to work we had great friends and we we were given everything we wanted in our lives probably some of us would believe then we will be all happy right but some of us also know that that's just not how it works. You can have everything in the world, and you can have parents or friends who are trying to avoid or trying to protect you from everything that could potentially happen that is bad to you, and yet you still feel like just Siddhartha does here. He found no joy in himself. He also contemplated some other, one other thing. And this is where it gets really interesting because um, Siddhartha was raised in northern India. And so we can assume that he was raised in the Indian caste system. That's why it's called the son of Brahman. And we can also assume that he probably followed the Hindu religion, which often is, again, mistakenly seen as polytheism. They believe in multiple gods, which it really is not. But there is some worship of gods very similar, like in the Catholic uh, faith, where Catholics worship some of the saints. right? But here, Siddhartha starts to break off from that idea that gods are enormously special and beyond any flaws. He says, were the gods, gods not creations, created like me and you, subject to mine, mortal? He's recognizing that the gods that his tradition, his religion, believed in and worshipped, were still not exactly where he wanted to go. And in a lot of sense, that is the core of Buddhism, because in Buddhism, there is no such thing as God. In Buddhism, Buddha himself never really addressed the idea of God. It was all about the practice, about the end of suffering. And even though there's many Buddhists Buddhists who are talking about God, they're relating to God, the actual original teaching is not. That's why Buddhism is not a religion, but a philosophy because it's so steeped into the practice. And if you read the first chapter, you get a sense of it, because Siddhartha, with his his friend Govinda, they both meditated quite a bit. They learned about silence. They talked about Atman, the soul, or better, the self. Siddhartha realized that he wanted to get to know the self, that which is beyond his human existence. So here is Atman, a representation, very common, of what that is. It's that light that we often experience within ourselves that we cannot define, we cannot box in, we cannot remove, but it's part of us. Adi Shankara is one of the um, Eastern philosophy teachers. He said, who but the Atman is capable of removing the bonds of ignorance passion and self-interested action what this means is something that comes out in chapter 1 where siddhartha realizes that the only way to get away from our own limitations and from suffering is to completely embrace the higher self the atman in unity speech we would call this embracing the christ or Realizing the oneness with God, same thing. That's the only way to remove ourselves from ignorance, passion, and self-interested action. He also quotes the Upanishads. The Upanishads, there's 15 Upanishads. They're kind of like um, collections of various verses. In the Hindu tradition, we have the Vedas. Ever heard of the Vedas? One of those Vedas is called the Sama Vedas, out of which many Brahmins actually chant in Sanskrit. It's a a spiritual practice to chant. You may have even heard it. You can actually type it into YouTube, and type in Sama Veda singing, and you hear these gurus or these spiritual leaders or Brahmins to chant those Upanishads, chant those verses. And one of those Upanishads is referenced here in Chapter 1, a contemplation that Siddhartha has about Atman. Your soul is the whole world. Right? Again, the translation of the soul, we can say your higher self is the whole world. You start to see there's elements of oneness in here. Siddhartha very early on, and he's maybe in his teen years now, realizes that the Atman, the self, is not individual, but it is collective. Or it is not only individual, but also collective. It's the self, but also the whole world. What we do matters to the whole world. If we get up in the morning and start yelling at the TV because we don't like what the news is telling us, that in a very real way, is affecting the world. Because we, as the higher self, as Atman, are creating this world together. And it sounds almost impossible, doesn't it? It sounds really weird to say that even our tiniest action matter in this world. But this is a strong belief we have in unity, that even if we believe that our actions do not matter, They do to some degree, especially when we come together as a community as we do now. All our actions matter for this world. Gandhi knew this, right? Be the change you want to see in this world. The Dalai Lama knew this. Mother Teresa knew this. You can look up quotes from all those great spiritual leaders, and you will see it over and over again, this simple Verse translated as our soul is the whole world. We are not just one person. The other thing that he's saying, this is also from one of the Upanishads, truly the name of the Brahman is Satyam. Verily he knows, he who knows such a thing will enter the heavenly world every day. Satyam, see if I have something here. Satyam is an adverb, it's conjugated, it comes from the word satya. Satya is a Sanskrit word, it means truth. So satyam means to be truthful, to be real, to be present, to be authentic. Guess what? Our lives change once we start to be real, don't you think? Once we start pretending that we are someone that we are not, that we come and engage with each other and being real with each other rather than pretending. And so we not only have the self, Atman, which is central to Siddhartha's learning at this point, but we also have the idea of Satyam, Satya, truth, to be truthful. And here is where we can look up some of Charles Fillmore's, our co-founder's writing on truth, Truth abides in fullness at the very core of one's being. Consciousness expands and it touches everlasting truth. Truth is so central, right? It's a different kind of truth than we often think about. It's not the truth that we're looking for in everyday life necessarily, where we want to make others wrong and ourselves right, right? That's kind of like the little t truth. Because that can change in every moment, doesn't it? We're looking at the big capital T truth. What is really true? One big truth in unity, for example, is that we are all one. That we are Atman individually, but we're also Atman collectively. Oh, and the highlighted one, I should. Can we go back? Yeah. What seems new is but the unveiling of that which has always been. When we look at truth, capital T truth, right? The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, that truth has always been true. It's not something that we need to create. It's something that we wake up to. That's why awakening is such an appropriate concept. It's not something we need to create. It actually does take a lot less effort to just be than not to be. If you ever uh, studied under a spiritual guru or teacher and whatever, they often say all the same thing. It takes more effort for us to be so messed up as we often are and feel than it is that than it takes for us to be just real. And if you really think about it, you will probably agree to that statement, wouldn't you? When you completely were yourself, whether you sang by yourself in the shower, (laughs) when you were by yourself and you could kick off your shoes and you didn't have any care at all in the world and you didn't have to be accountable for anything just for a split second, In that moment, did it take any effort at all? No. But as soon as we pick up the phone, as soon as we interact with others, even with our closest partners, as soon as we interact with this world, sometimes it feels like such a burden. And that's why in Buddhism, the focus on releasing the suffering is so big. Because they come from the understanding that once we are awake, once we are willing to be just as we are, all the suffering and the work falls away. And it becomes really, really easy. Wouldn't that be great? Anyone there yet? Huh? Are we there yet? I love that one, you know. Are we there yet? So now, you, hear, you heard a lot about Siddhartha's early life. But there is, a, there is a comparison that we can make in, into Jesus' life. So we know a lot about Jesus when he was born, before he was born, after he was born, with the three kings and all that stuff, and going to Egypt, and coming back, and hiding, and all that. But then we hear nothing. The first time we hear anything is in Luke, Luke chapter 2 where Luke writes about Jesus going with uh, Joseph, Mary, his brothers, sisters, and his family, going to uh, Passover, going into Jerusalem for Passover, and then kind of like on his way back, they l- lose him. So Mary and Joseph have no idea where it is. They just thought, oh, he probably just went back with some friends and whatever, and they ended up then finding him in the temple in Jerusalem teaching as a 12-year-old, teaching the Western Brahmins, the priests, teaching the Levites, teaching those who fought against him later in life, teaching those who were responsible for his crucifixion. And they were all amazed as a 12-year-old how much knowledge he had. That's the first time we actually hear anything about Jesus' special way of being as a 12-year-old. Now, I got to tell you, I was trying to find a good picture. I just can't imagine a redhead, uh, on like red hair and white skin. Remember the, the the picture I showed you maybe a year or two ago about how scientists believe Jesus looked like? You know, brown skin and Middle Eastern dark hair. And whenever I see pictures like that, I just I just have to shake my head and laugh. So we just have to take it a little bit with a little grain of uh, salt here, right? but we get a sense of the specialness of Jesus. We know that Mary, whether we believe in the Immaculate Birth or not, but there was something special about Jesus as a baby, as someone being born. Very similar to Queen Maya giving birth to Siddhartha. And we're hearing here for the first time there was something special about Jesus as well. And as you know, that in the end of the chapter, What happens in this first chapter is that the Samanas came by. They traveled through the town. The Samanas are the ascetics, those who deprive themselves from everything. And Siddhartha, because he couldn't find his joy, because none of his readings, none of his teachings, none of his learnings, none of the good things that happened to him all day long helped him to find his joy in his life. He was looking for a release. He was looking for a different way of being taught. So he got excited about the Samanas, the ascetics. He got excited about them going a completely different way because he had everything in life, right? He had all the food, all the clothes, all the money. He had people that loved him. He had a good friend, Govinda. He had everything he wanted in life, and he knew that was not enough. So he looked at the Samanas who gave everything up and said, that is it. And he told his father. His father fought him at first, but then eventually allowed him. And that's when he left to go on his journey. And we can only speculate how old Siddhartha was. Some Buddhist historical documents or some scholars believe that Siddhartha actually was married and had children when he left. We don't see this in this version of Herma Hesse. He probably was a lot younger. Maybe he was 12. Maybe he was 14, 16. We don't really know. But he was certainly young. And he was certainly someone who was looking for something. Before we go into chapter 2, I want you just to take a moment and look at your own life. Go all the way back to when you were a child, and whether you can resonate with anything that you have read in the book about the parents, Siddhartha's parents, trying to protect him, whether you can resonate with Siddhartha's yearning for something more. I know that when I was young, even though my parents gave me everything, my parents Weren't wealthy, but we were kind of lower, somewhere middle-middle class in Switzerland. We had pretty good life, right? It was not enough for me. Felt very much alone. I needed something else. And maybe you remember that moment when even though you had everything, and maybe you didn't have everything, but if you had, maybe you still realized it's not enough. We don't know anything about what Jesus did after 12, right? The next time we hear about Jesus is in Luke chapter three, when he meets John the Baptist. That's 18 years later, at least. Some may even say that Jesus might have traveled to India, and guess what? Learning about Buddhism. You know There is a strong belief that Jesus actually traveled, and it makes a lot of sense if you think about Jesus being a carpenter because there is this hundreds of years old, thousands of years old, year old tradition, and I don't know if you even have this in the United States, but we certainly have it in Europe. Have you ever seen people that were dressed in black that had like these bell-bottom things, a huge hat, and all they had is like a little bag on their back and they would hitchhike all the time. Have, have, you, have you? It's not the Amish, but it's very similar to the Rumspringer of the Amish. But in Switzerland, you, in Europe in general, Switzerland, Germany, and Austria, you see them all over the place. Those are carpenter apprentices who travel the world on a really shoestring. They go from town to town. They find someone who will host them, and then they work and learn how to build a house, how to build a table, how to build anything. That tradition in Europe is hundreds of years old. And so I can really imagine that Jesus, learning the craft from Joseph, a carpenter, goes off, not the spiritual teacher as we know him now, goes off to India and starts uh, exploring India and gets across... The Buddhist teachings that by then are about 600 years old. And then guess what? He brings it back. So it's very, not a common, but it's, it's understandable since we don't know a lot about Jesus, what's happening, that his journey could have been very similar to that of Siddhartha, leaving his family go and explore, and become who we eventually became. So then with the Samanas, which are the ascetics, we have Siddhartha losing a lot of weight there and learning over a number of years, some say three years, some say seven years, uh, learning from the elder Samanas about being an ascetic, which means to deny absolutely everything to deny bodily uh, pleasures, to deny wealth or even possessions in any way. Siddhartha strongly believed, because he couldn't find joy in the wealth that he grew up with, that that must be it. I must be able to find joy in not having anything. And he learned and learned and learned, and his friend, his, his good friend Govinda was with him And here is just a depiction of him alone. And a quote from chapter 2, a goal stood before Siddhartha, a single goal, to become empty, empty of thirst, empty of wishing, empty of dreams, empty of joy and sorrow. That was his goal. Guess what that looks like nowadays? How do we become empty? What do we do? Louder? Meditate. There you go. Tech team, always on top. Come on, someone else. What else do we do to become empty? Fast. Fast, yeah. How about pray? In moments of prayer, we should be empty. We shouldn't really ask for anything. You truly think about it. The way prayer even is taught by Jesus, if you really look into it, it's not about asking for anything. It's about learning to be what already is. It's learning to become the Atman, the self. It's about being completely empty. So in this chapter, this is all about, and you have these conversations between Siddhartha and Govinda, all about that learning process. Charles Fillmore has something to say about asceticism, too. He says, the practice of severe self-denial, the attempt to deny the body itself as an evil thing instead of beholding it as the sacred temple of the living God to be re- revered, respected, and loved. So you can see that Charles didn't really appreciate asceticism at all. And as we know, at the very end of the chapter, two, Siddhartha came to the conclusion that even the ascetics, the samanas, didn't really get it. And he heard about this guy, whispers about Godama. Godama, this supposedly being enlightened being, they also whisper is the Buddha. That's when he learned about something else. And as you will see in every chapter that follows. Siddhartha moves forward, learns something new, only to realize that it's still not enough. So we have him start out in perfect wealth. He has absolutely everything. And most of us have lived life long enough to understand that just because we have everything we need, it still doesn't mean that we are happy and we are fulfilled. Then he goes into asceticism with the Samanas, giving up absolutely everything, and yet it's still not enough. Here he sits with Govinda by the river. The river is becoming more and more of a symbol in the book. Eventually, the one thing that will give him the answer in the end. There is this conversation that he has with Govinda, There is nothing to be learned. There is indeed no such thing, so I believe, as what we refer to as learning. There is, oh my friend, just one knowledge. This is everywhere. This is Atman. This is within me and within you and within every creature. And so I am starting to believe that this knowledge has no worse enemy than the desire to know it than learning. He realizes at that point that it doesn't matter how much we learn in life how many books we read, how many workshops we attend, and how smart we think we are, this all does not mean anything in comparison to realizing the self. Even more so, we don't need to learn anything to be who we are. There's lots of Buddhist stories about fools that are closer to enlightenment than the most highly decorated Brahmin or priest or monk. There's heaps of them around. And Siddhartha in chapter two realizes this. He learned for three or seven years with those samanas. <clears throat> he did everything we could to reach enlightenment and it didn't lead to anything. Guess what? Who is this? Louder. Jesus and? John the Baptist. So there's similarities between Jesus and John the Baptist as well as Siddhartha and Govinda. Siddhartha and Govinda grew up together. Jesus and John the Baptist are only six months apart. John the Baptist is six months older than Jesus. He was born by a cousin of Mary, by Elizabeth, son of a priest. And guess what? Uh, John the Baptist's lifestyle was, can you take a guess, thinking of chapter 2? Yes. John the Baptist was an ascetic, and many believed that John was the Messiah, that he was the Messiah that everyone promised, because he followed this ascetic lifestyle, and everyone just felt that that was it. But John himself, before he baptized Jesus, said, no, that's not it. That's not it. I baptize you with water. But one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Here is something that often is missed. Jesus never followed asceticism. He actually was sometimes even called a drunkard, that he liked the wine a little bit too much. Well, of course. What would we do if we couldn't turn water into wine? That would be very tempting, wouldn't it? (laughs) So this is the first thing we actually learn in Luke, in chapter 3, after when Jesus was 12 years old and taught in the temple. We skip 18 years, and this is the first time Jesus shows up. And John said, I'm not worthy to baptize you. And Jesus said, no, you've got to baptize me because it's part of what I need to do. But he never followed John the Baptist in asceticism. Jesus had an inkling, had some insight that that's not the way. Because we cannot deprive ourselves from the beautiful things that we, can, we have to offer to this world. Asceticism is an extreme form of holding back. I'm not trying to make it wrong, but we see in Jesus' and in Arthur's example that asceticism was not the way for them. We should always allow ourselves to embrace the goodness of life, be joyful about having the possessions that we have as long as we are not desperately attached to them. It's not about getting rid of everything. It's about appreciating what we have. And from this moment on here, It really starts we're only starting this journey but you will see more and more how these two stories come together that there is some similarities between those two and whether we believe Jesus learned all these Buddhist teachings while he was traveling to India or not doesn't matter but what we can see is that there is so many similarities about what spirituality truly is about. So finding fulfillment in a searching world may look very different for you than it does for me. That's why it's sometimes so difficult to deal with each other and to get along with each other, right? Because my path may not be your path, but who am I to tell you that your path is wrong? Your path may be different than someone else's path. Who are you to tell someone else that their path is wrong? One thing that we can learn from both stories is that we must remain open and seeking in a seeking world so that we get to know, to learn, and to grow without ever, ever stopping. Enlightenment is not a goal. Enlightenment is a way of living and a way of being. So that was quite an introduction to this. And I hope if you haven't read chapter one or two, you will have some time to catch up. There are two beautiful chapters I just mentioned before service. I I would probably do this for a whole year. I would tackle each chapter a month because there's so much richness in every sentence that's, sentence that's being written. And think of the similarities between the two, and maybe some of you are willing to dust off the Bible, bring it down from the attic and dust, the, dust it off, and start reading a little bit about the story. Start thinking of Jesus in a different way, as someone who was still searching, someone who was still learning, someone who was still willing while he was already a great teacher and a great example, but still willing to learn, to change, and to grow. And then you will start seeing those two lives coming and merge together. And my hope is for all of us that we, along those lines, learn to come together a little bit closer and learn to appreciate each other. We can have completely different upbringings, completely different learnings, in our lives, and yet we can still help each other to awaken and to become who and what we truly are. And with that, let us move into meditation. So allow those sounds of the piano music to be your guide, a way to turn within. see yourself as someone who's just following a flow, a flow that's inward, a flow that is allowing us to settle a little bit more. When Siddhartha was telling his father he would leave him for the Samanas, his father said he was hoping he would return to learn from his son. And then he went and sat by the river. The river that will become so important later in life. life is just like river never-ending flow carrying all the pain all the joy all the judgment all the greatness and goodness and kindness all the regrets all the resistance everything nothing is excluded everything is flowing down the river and together we are part of this flow Remember that the truth, satya, is not reserved just to some special people, highly educated. Satya, truth, the truth of who and what we are, is available to all of us. No matter our age, no matter our status, no matter the race, the gender no matter what we do for work, no matter whether we are retired. The truth is shared among all religions, all paths, all people. The same truth allows us to be and express ourselves in unique ways, beautiful, kind, graceful ways. The truth is the reality right now. The truth is eternal. Truth is destiny. Fulfillment in a searching world. So as we follow the inner flow of the river and allow all our sadness and judgments and joys just to blend together, to accept everything that's going on with us without pushing it away. We are ready to release and forgive. And so it is, amen. Thank you for listening to the Unity Fort Worth podcast. You just heard this week's message and meditation. For the live streams and more information, go to unityfortworth.org.